0: Roll Massif's collection of eight road, gravel, and mountain bike sportives in Colorado take riders on a journey through the most stunning landscapes in the U.S. Each Sportif offers a range of distances and challenges to suit all abilities. Iconic courses wind through the Alpine terrain at the Copper Triangle Sportif and desert landscapes through the Colorado National Monument during the Tour of the Moon.
1: Each event delivers an incredible day out on the bike with world-class support and a post-ride festival. And to help get kids out on their bikes, anyone under 18 rides for free at the road and gravel events. You can check them out at rollmassif.com. That is R-O-L-L-M-A-S-S-I-F dot com. And listeners of the Fizzo podcast get 15% off any sportive using the code fiso 15 That's P-Y-S-O-15 at checkout, which expires May 1st. What will be left of men's and women's professional cycling come the fall of 2020? We sat down with Steve Maxwell and Spencer Martin, writers of The Outer Line, to discuss the impact the pause will have on the athletes, events, teams, governing body, and, of course, the fans. This week on Put Your Socks On. Hello and welcome to what is set to be another fantastic show. My name is Angus Morton, beaming to you direct from my living room. And today, as I always am, I am joined by none other than Bobby Julick. Mate, how are you doing?
0: I'm staying safe. I'm staying sane. That's about all I can say. <laughs> so yeah. st- still kind of amazed what you notice around the house when you're home all day long all the little things that you've been putting off, you know, things that you haven't noticed before. But it's getting a little bit warmer down here in Greenville, South Carolina. So I figured, you know what, I'm gonna look at turning the sprinklers on. So I went around, (laughs) tightened everything up, and saw that one of the, as soon as I turned on the water, I saw that one of the heads must have been driven over and, and was busted. So I go to turn the water off, and then I was suddenly swarmed by bees. And I'm not a big fan of bees of any type, so I got the hell out of there. And then I noticed that they were going into this little hole in the brick mortar of the house that was, I don't know, perhaps made for ventilation by the builder of some sort. But these little buggers were just going in there. Like they were all out and then they, one by one they just went back in there. So um, obviously I had to call our sprinkler guy because I don't know crap about fixing sprinkler heads. And he goes over there and he sees the honeybees and he's like, this is awesome. You have a colony of honeybees behind this hole, and they probably have a honeycomb inside the wall. My first first thing was to smoke them out of their holes. But (laughs) when I said that, he informed me that honeybees are protected, at least down here in the state of South Carolina. And I'd have to call a bee expert to cut a hole in the drywall of the garage, safely remove the hive... So what do they do? Give them that smoke so it kind of makes them mellow. And then they remove the hive, put it in a box, and transport it to, I don't know, a honey farm or something like that. So I'm like, really? At this (laughs) time, like with everything else going on, now I got honeybees in my house? Man, I don't know what to say.
1: Bobby, and here I was thinking that I was losing my mind. Honeybees in the wall. Yeah, I tell you what, mate, it's it's been a long time indoors for everybody, but I'm 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 not doing too I'm not doing too badly. I was informed last night by my my little bro uh, Lockie, who I'm hunkered down with here, and he uh, he he said we've been locked down for nearly a month now. Um, and I swear to God, I thought I would like be getting a bunch of stuff done, um, and I don't feel like I've done anything. I haven't read any books I have wanted to. I haven't watched any films that I kind of had on any checklists. Um, so you know, uh, I don't even know what to make of that. But nonetheless. Healthy and well, and I hope all of our listeners are being courteous and staying indoors as well. Let's move on to the show. As we push into the second month of social distancing and stay-at-home orders, the economic and social implications of the global pandemic are starting to become clear. And whilst there is still no definitive end in sight, the entire cycling industry, and all industries for that matter, are scrambling to figure out what they can do to stay afloat and what the waters will look like once the storm subsides. To get a little bit of a deeper insight into the core of the issues facing the sport of cycling right now, we reached out to Steve Maxwell and Spencer Martin of The Outer Line to hear from two of cycling's most intelligent men just how they see this situation playing out.
0: Man, I'm really excited to hear from Steve and Spencer because I have the utmost respect for them and know that they will be a great interview. I know there are a lot of smart and talented people with some great ideas on how to help save and grow the sport in the future. But until now, the powers that be in cycling haven't quite listened, or more importantly, haven't acted, in my opinion. I will be interested to hear where we are now, what changes we should make, and what our sport will look like in the future. There are people trying to hold on, there are people trying to adapt, and evolution suggests to me the later is the likely winner. People are appreciating being outside in a new way. Big cities with constant hustle and bustle are calm, perhaps smelling fresh air for the first time in a while. You know, public transport may never really recover to what it was ever again. And what a great time to use to fall in love
2: with the bike again.
1: Absolutely, Bobby. Absolutely. Let's jump in and hear from Steve and Spencer. Welcome to the show, guys. How are you doing?
2: We're doing good. Thanks for having us, uh, Gus and Bobby. Good to be here.
1: Yeah, it's been great. It, uh, thanks for having us. Uh, very excited to be on. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to have you guys on. Um, would you mind kind of giving us a quick overview of how the coronavirus shutdown is affecting the sport so far?
2: Uh, yeah, we, yeah, I'd be happy to to give you a quick overview and then maybe we can break it down into a little bit more uh, detail it's, it's clear that the virus is you know having a having a major impact on all of the stakeholders of the sport I guess I would say a couple things one is uh, you know clearly we can't really imagine at this point in time what the overall impact of COVID is going to be on the sport just, just like we can't really imagine what you know what the impact is going to be on society in general when we come out of the other side of this whole thing, um, but I think there are a few things that are that are starting to be apparent. I think, you know, we're not going to be going back to exactly the same old thing that we, you know, we were living with before. We're not going back to the same old normal. I think it's clear that some things will probably change permanently as a result of this whole calamity. You know, one thing that we're seeing in a lot of other areas of society or of the economy and so on are that things are going to be maybe downsized or or maybe a little bit smaller or more efficient, that we may see some of the sort of survival of the fittest type of, of effect here that in many industries, you know, maybe the stronger players will survive. I was, I was just reading something this morning that said that we may see as many as 20% of the private colleges in this country go under, for example. And so I think in our little, you know, in our little corner of the world in cycling, we're probably going to see a similar effect to some extent. We may come out of this with fewer teams or with fewer events. I mean, who knows at this point. I think there, you know, there are a lot of uncertainties, but I, I do think we can make some some educated guesses and, and Spencer and I are sort of prepared to talk through these things one by one. You know, how does this affect the riders? How does it affect the teams, the managers, the events? even up to the regulators and the UCI, I think each one of these stakeholders is, is going to come out of this thing on the other side a little bit different than the way we went in.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that specific impact on the riders. In this day of social media, we are able to stay in touch with these guys and some are stuck indoors like in, in Spain and France and some aren't. Do you think this could be an issue once the sport does get going again? And that being said, you know, in a very slow rollout, do you think that that's a little bit of an unfair advantage for some guys to be able to be training outside while others are are stuck inside riding indoors or not at all for that matter?
3: Yeah, that's, that's a good question, Bobby. Um, I was actually just talking to Steve last night about this, and it certainly will be an unfair advantage for those like Oliver Nason has been uh, doing big rides on Strava and you recently came under pressure for that from, you know, I, rivals and others who are in countries like Spain and Italy who maybe can't get outside and were jealous of his ability to get these long training rides in. And he, he had to make his Strava private. It's unclear if he's, he'll probably continue to keep doing those long rides, just not make them public. But if we get to a future where we can even race outside again, I I think you have to take that. You have to be happy with that. And it's certainly unfair to those who are stuck inside. But right now, if you told me we're racing in August, I think the riders are just going to have to accept that that, that tough luck of some being stuck inside and maybe not having the fitness and and go forward with that. So to to answer your question, yes, it's unfair. But I also, I think people would just be happy to have events running again at this
1: point. And what other impacts are there outside the very obvious being the inability to get outside for for most of these athletes what other you know what other kind of like I guess issues are they facing that that they themselves might not necessarily be aware of
3: I mean I, I first of all I think their mental state would have to be if you're stuck inside if you're in Spain it has to be tough right because you're if you're trying to train you're doing all these rides on the trainer and like I think balka mm-hmm. did like a seven hour ride on the trainer like You know, that's fun and it it's tough, but at certain point you you should be worried about, you know, the mental toll that takes. Like could you could you really do that for three months? Could you just ride inside and be completely isolated from people, other people in society? I think that's gonna that could could become an issue as as this goes along.
0: And what about the teams and the team managers? You know, we've read a lot about them coming up with some Creative solutions to get through this. We've seen that salaries have been cut in order to to weather the storm as long as possible. It seems like they're gonna have some issues depending on when their sponsors actually pay them. I'm sure that there's some that pay like annually, some semi-annually, some quarterly, maybe even some monthly. And that's definitely gonna affect the the ability for the the teams to survive, correct?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I, I really don't envy those guys that are trying to be team managers right at the moment. I mean, they're they're having to make an awful lot of very difficult decisions under, you know, under circumstances of almost complete uncertainty. So it, it's a tough, it's a tough assignment. Obviously, I think everybody will say and everybody should say that they have to focus on rider safety and rider, you know, health kind of concerns first. I think everybody's primary concern when the when the racing kind of wound down was to make sure everybody got home and got safe and got someplace where they can sort of ride this thing out. But there's a lot of tough decisions there. I mean, towards the end of the racing era, you know, a month ago or, or whenever it was some of those guys were in a position of having to decide, you know, is it, is it more important for me to, to have my riders home and safe, or is it more important for me to maybe collect 10 UCI points, that could be critical at the end of the year in terms of whether or not I'm a world tour team at all next year. And those sort of things are pretty, pretty hard and pretty subjective uh, decisions to make. And we can get into the sponsor thing in a minute, but you know, as, as the sponsorships start to waver a little bit, you know, if you're a team manager, how do you balance your expenses? Where do you decide to cut costs? And if you do have to start cutting, how do you do it? Or if you have to lay off people, who gets laid off first? So, I think the team managers are really in a tough spot at the moment. And I'm sure they're all trying to do the best they can, but they're trying to make decisions about the future with with basically no information or very little information about what's likely to unfold here over the next few months.
1: And I want to get into um, what they can kind of do now, what these teams um, can sort of do whilst we're in shutdown. But um, we'll talk about that in a minute. First, I want to just move on to the next kind of um, stakeholder in the sport of 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 cycling and that is the events and event organizers um, we spoke a couple of weeks ago with uh, rich Hincappy who runs um, a series of, of of grand fondos and he was saying that it's the little guys who get who are going to get cut and that you know bigger organizations should should survive in the grand fondo kind of amateur world how does it look in the professional world and like what is their business model being it that they don't have, um, you know, uh, athletes paying to participate in their events.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think they've modeled for a situation where their business is running races and then they're, they they can not run a race. That's going to be incredibly disastrous for their, their bottom line. It's a good observation that Rich has where, you know, the bigger you are, the, m- the more body blows you can take. So ASO who organizes a tour de France, They'll probably be fine. RCS Sport does the Giro d'Italia, uh, Milan-San Remo, and a few other you know big premier events. They're, they'll also probably make it. But you know, it, even you, you know, like the E3 BinkBank Bank Tour is, I, I believe, an independently owned and operated race. Uh, that that could be very tough for them. I mean, we could get through this. Then you know, maybe they have to explore a strategic sale to Flanders Classic, which is like the premier Belgian organizer. Mm or they go away. Um, it's, you know, they have fixed costs like payroll and insurance premiums and they they can't drive any revenue. And I'm sure the sponsor deals they've struck, I mean, I, these big races make money primarily from from sponsorship deals with companies wanting to advertise during the event. And they might have to return, you know, a significant portion, if not all of that money. It's going to be very difficult for for these non you know, super premier organizers during this time.
2: We're trying to sort of game out or sort of trying to estimate, you know, what, what what would this schedule thing and event thing look like, depending upon when we return to racing. Like if we return on the 1st of July, we return on the 1st of August, you know, there's going to be X days left in the, in the practical season. And we're, we're kind of trying to play around a little bit and figure out well, what, what would happen if we had say 60 days, to race or if we had 75 days to race or if we only had say 30 days to race what could happen and i think it's going to be a real it could end up being a real mess if if somebody doesn't step in to sort of sort of take charge of that situation because otherwise it's going to be sort of a uh you know a mad a mad battle field out there with everybody trying to squeeze in their results or squeeze in their events rather and you know what's going to happen to the guys that already had events scheduled for those days, what's going to happen to the little guys when they kind of get trampled on by the bigger events, what's going to happen if a rider is asked to, you know, ride Rue Bay and start the tour to France the next day. There's a whole lot of questions and uncertainties around how this is all going to unfold depending upon how long this lockdown lasts.
0: Yeah. And, and what about the, the sponsors? You know, we've talked about the teams we've talked about the riders but normally, marketing budgets are the first to go in times of crisis, and I think we can officially say we're, we're in a time of crisis for sponsorship, at least. But w- what happens there? How vulnerable are these teams and these races due to these sponsors maybe having you know that expendable income or that marketing budget being cut in half or even just being taken away totally?
2: Yeah, no, I think you know <clears throat> that's a very that's a very serious question, and you know we took a look, Bobby, at this thing in a in a piece a couple of weeks ago, where we talked to as many of the world tour team managers as we could, and you know even as even as recently as two weeks ago, a lot of these guys said, "Hey, we have a signed contract with our sponsors, so you know we should be good," but we're obviously finding that these are unprecedented times, and. And you know, <laughs> in unprecedented times, you know, maybe the the rules of thumb don't necessarily apply. And I think that once a firm, a sponsoring firm goes into you know kind of severe economic distress, that all cards are off the table, and you know people may walk away from from contracts pretty quickly. we try to take a <clears throat> we try to take a look at the at the team's primary sponsors to try to get sort of a clue. Of, of what might happen and I think it's it's uh, it's worth delving into that for a minute or two you know we have a few teams that are sponsored primarily by travel or tourism type industries the companies that come to mind there would be ef education first and sunweb and you have to think that both of those businesses are pretty well ground to a complete halt mm. so you know what happens something will have to give you know pretty quickly we got we got other teams that are sponsored by retailers like like CCC. We've already seen some cutbacks and and so forth there as their retail businesses have started to falter. Uh, We've got some teams that are backed by wealthy patrons, you know, perhaps like Ineos or like Mitchelton Scott, Uh, teams that are essentially funded by wealthy individuals. And when the wealthy individuals see their portfolios, you know, collapsing by 30% or 40%, you can imagine some of them may have, you know, other priorities too. So I think that, you know, sponsors will vary in terms of their level of commitment and their ability to withstand these kind of economic pressures. We haven't seen too many companies outright sort of drop or pull out immediate, you know, pull out altogether yet, but it's still pretty early in this in this whole lockdown process, and and I think we have to understand that most cycling teams are you know are not sponsored by you know General Electric or Unilever or or you know these kinds of truly global conglomerates that can kind of ride this thing out. We typically have sponsors that are smaller companies, so I don't want to be uh, I don't want to be a uh, you know uh, too negative about it, but I think we we probably will see this trend that we've seen over the last couple of weeks of, of teams having to start to pull back a little bit in response to sponsor, um, cutbacks, we're probably going to see that continue. And, and, you know, who knows, we may see some teams get into some fairly, uh, you know, severe situations.
1: Shifting gears a little, um, and I guess a little bit to the point that you just made then, right. Where I guess, you know, these, these big companies are, you know, are in trouble the teams, that, that directly affects the teams. Is there a way that the teams can potentially right now do something to generate activity for their sponsors to you know creatively engage with their fans? I mean, the obvious is, is Zwift, um, but I feel like Zwift is going to get old pretty quick if that's the only avenue for um, for teams to kind of get exposure. Is there other ways to do that?
3: Yeah, it's a good question, Gus. And I mean, cycling, pro cycling is you know a terrible business compared to mainstream sports like soccer, football, and basketball. But in this specific case, they actually might have an advantage. Where you know, if you're a basketball team, you, you probably you know you can't fill up an arena right now and play. But with pro cycling, you, you yeah, as you said, Swift could get old. But at the moment, it's it's certainly better than nothing. Where you can ride. And, you know, you're actually getting better fan interaction than you would normally. And, you know, I, I don't know if you guys saw, it wasn't on Zwift, but that virtual tour of Flanders on Sunday. And Greg yeah. Van Avermaet won, and his numbers were absolutely ridiculous. Like, I think that's, that's very cool for fans to see, to get a chance to, like, get a look under the hood and see how strong these guys really are. So, you know, that's not, like, it's not all negative. I think that's a very... Like, positive fan interaction aspect of this lockdown. But they could also do things, you know, if you just think like, you know, there's no wrong, there's no wrong move. The only thing you could do wrong is not make a move at this point, you know, even like cheap or, you know, not free, but like low cost, like digital documentaries of like writers, like going about their life under the lockdown and like adapting to it as the fans are. Or, you know, if you even want to get more creative about it, like someone like Yumbo, a sponsor of the Yumbo Visma team could, you know, have writers document ordering groceries through the, through the grocery chain, which is what Yumbo is, you know, and getting that delivered to the house. So you're like promoting social distancing and then also promoting the sponsor's product where, you know, it's not, you're not, you're not slow to zero. There are things you can do in this situation. And Steve and I actually wrote a piece about this for Vela News last week. And we kind of ran down all the different things they could do, but I mean, it's none of this is a permanent solution. You just hope it's a stopgap until this is over. And the, but you know, you could even cherry pick then the the best thing, the best alternative things, and then carry that forward potentially.
0: And that being said, w- talking about the remainder of this season, what 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 is the current best guess about what will happen in the 2020 calendar what does this mean for the sport if the smaller races either have to sell to the bigger ones or basically just go under you know and when i say sell to those organizations those ones who already hold the power in the sport just to just to survive just to keep their doors open
3: yeah i I mean the rest of the 2020 calendar i mean you i would say my best guess right now is you know we don't see any, any professional racing for the rest of the year. I think Gavin Newsom, the California governor, you know, has been saying he doesn't think NFL games are going to happen in California, you know, well into, you know, he's going to have to push that way back into the end of 2020. And so you, you, you just wonder if, if they could really get these races going. Um, And, but yeah, I definitely see going into 2021, you know, major consolidation where these smaller races are going to get picked off by the bigger races. Um, we, and we can, Steve can chime in on this a little bit later. It's maybe not necessarily all negative where cycling is such a fractured power structure. We've seen with like the tour of Flanders just got a new date today on September 19th, but that's just a random date. Like, what if the Vuelta a España is in September with its new date? Then they're overlapping and there's no authority to really come in. You know, there's no overarching like, stakeholder that can actually plan these out in a cogent and you know, sensible way.
2: You know, I guess one thing that we've kind of you know, suggested or observed over the years, you know, long before any of this whole phenomenon started, was, was the sense that, that cycling tends to have a little bit of a crowded calendar. And especially when you look at the different levels of races that, you know, I don't know how many total days it it adds up to, but, you know, it's, it's, you know, five or six or 700 days of racing a year. We often have major events that are overlapping. and, And we've always sort of had the idea that, you know, this sort of scarcity value that maybe, maybe cycling could be in a stronger position if it downsized its calendar a little bit and made it a little bit more logical. And a little bit easier to follow mm. and possible for fans to see you know more easily watch each of the major races and so i, I don't know that, that could possibly be one of the silver linings here that maybe something that we should have done in this sport over the last decades or last several years this this you know this kind of catastrophic time will actually force us to do that um As I said earlier, I think the main thing, and especially if the racing season for 2020 gets extremely compressed, um, the main thing is gonna be somebody to step in and it would have to be somebody like the UCI to step in and say, okay, we've only got 40 days available, guys. Here's what we're, here here are the events that are gonna occur and here's when, and all the rest of you guys are just gonna have to wait till next year. I'm sorry, but that's just, you know, that's just the way it is. Otherwise, I fear that we'll have this sort of a madhouse and people will be trying to run their races at the same time and ASO will be elbowing aside smaller people and it could just be a real unfortunate kind of chaotic mess and and not good for the sport at all.
1: You made an interesting point there, Um, Spencer, like talking about how um, the the California government was saying they may not necessarily run um, any more NFL games there this year. Um, we spoke uh, recently with um, Brendan uh, Schwab from the uh, World Players Association. He's an executive director there and, and he spoke about the responsibility of governing bodies um, of sports to set a good example right for, um, for the rest of, of society really as well in you know canceling events and making sure that, that athlete safety and, and, and the public safety is number one priority. The Olympic Games have been postponed. Um, I want to sort of hear what you guys think about one, what message that sends um, to the world, and then how does that affect sport on a global level? With the IOC essentially being the, you know, the emperor of of all sports, the kind of the buck stop, excuse me, the buck stops with the IOC when it comes to to all sports.
2: You know, I think it clearly is a clearly a tough situation for the IOC or, you know, it's clearly a tough situation for David LaCartiente at the UCI to try to balance these, these competing interests. I mean, on the one hand, you have to understand, you know, why there's a, you know, a huge public pressure to put public health and public safety first. And I think we all agree with that. But on the other hand, um, you know, these guys are burdened with trying, to, with trying to, you know, kind of preserve the economics. Of the sport and uh, as we've just been talking if if this whole sport gets shut down for a whole year there's a lot of, there's a lot of teams and a lot of people that are going to lose their jobs and lose their economic livelihood and so if you're sitting in Lepartian's seat or in, in Thomas Bach's seat I can I can kind of sympathize with why they're you know wringing their hands a little bit and taking a while to make these decisions because there's such you know such momentous decisions we all you know we all would love to see the olympics we all would love to see the tour but but you know maybe it's maybe it's best that we don't i think in, in terms of your in terms of your question i mean i i would say first of all we need to we always need to remind ourselves here that even though some of these stories are very painful and sad stories they kind of you know they kind of pale in comparison to what a lot of people are are dealing with there's there's thousands of these stories of olympic athletes you know who have spent the last years of their lives you know, preparing for one day or one week in Tokyo and, and all of those things are completely out the window now. And a lot of very, a lot of very sad stories across all of sports, you know, in our little corner here, I mean, the story about Matthew Vanderpoel and his preparation for the mountain bike, you know, championship. I mean, we've been reading about that for years now. And You know, on the women's side, folks like Chloe Geiger have been, you know, preparing single-mindedly for some of these events and they're all you're all completely out the window now, and who knows who knows where you may be a year from now. You know, is that an advantage or a disadvantage? Uh, you know, the postponement means that the UCI and the other Olympic federations won't be getting their piece of the of the huge Olympic revenue pie, and you know that kind of works its way down to the national governing boards too. We've already seen USA Cycling having to cut back and lay off some people. We saw USA Rugby recently declare bankruptcy. I mean the the full financial impact of having you no know, Olympics are pretty significant too. So uh, there's a, there's a lot of impacts that we probably haven't even thought about yet for the for the delay of the Olympics. Will some of the key sponsors still be there, et cetera, A year from now, or will they be in a you know in a weakened position? So there's a lot of big, lot of big questions there.
0: And one of the big knocks of the cycling business model is that we don't have a gate, we don't have stadiums. Um, Comparing the sport of cycling with that in mind, is cycling better or worse off compared to some of these other sports that are dependent on the gate, that are dependent on packing 50, 60, 70,000 people into a stadium?
2: Yeah, I mean that's really a, a, an interesting question, Bobby. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of funny. I think the answer is sort of that, you know, cycling doesn't have as much to lose. You know, that you're right, that's always been one of the you know widely touted sort of weaknesses of the of the pro cycling business model that we don't have that source of revenue. But, you know, we haven't lost it when it goes away either. So, I mean, we just, it's sort of like we don't have, you know, as much infrastructure associated with our sport as in most other sports. And so you can kind of, I guess you could say in a way, you can kind of turn it off and on more easily. You know, cycling may shut down or may suffer some pretty big losses here during this time, but I think it it could also turn back up again pretty quickly because we just don't have that kind of infrastructure. So I guess I guess sort of the <clears throat> sort of the answer to your to your question I think is that you know we don't we don't really have as much to lose in this situation as some other sports so it may actually be you know be sort of a bizarre kind of advantage to cycling vis-a-vis a lot of the other sports.
1: And on that, like, what do you think cycling is going to look like um, when we eventually come out of this thing, like? You know, obviously, there's a lot of of kind of negative, well, seemingly negative things coming uh, or going on right now. Will there be some positives, you know, like, um, Spencer, you mentioned before how the, the, the athletes now have this ability in this time to kind of create a bunch of content or essentially strengthen their position and their power, right? It's becoming more about the individual because that's what we get to see, right? It's becoming, you know as opposed to just being about the racing where we're caring more about the characters. So we seeing an increase in the, in the power of the athlete and how is that going to impact what we, um, what we see on the other side of this thing, you know, the condensing of, of the racing calendar, as you mentioned, Steve, is that going to be, you know, it's something that we've all wanted for a long time. um, And, and whilst it's a little bit painful, it may actually, may that actually be better for the sport? Is there going to be a good come out of this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I maybe make a couple comments and then let Spencer chime in. I mean, I don't know if you did you guys see the uh, the Instagram message that Lance Armstrong recorded yesterday or the day before about, you know, this as a as a time for the riders to sort of try to seize a little bit more authority or a little bit more power in the overall overall balance here. I mean, it was an interesting, interesting little kind of a pep speech pep talk that he gave saying you know this is maybe a time when the athletes should try to band together and, and increase that that level of influence on the sport which they've never quite uh accomplished in cycling mm. I, th- I think I think if I had to make a one general statement you know and we sort of opened up with this is that you know it's, it's hard to know now I think there will definitely be changes there could be some positive changes but the bottom line is it's just it's just too early you know we just don't know yet what 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 some of the potential benefits will be that will come out of this. But I wanted to just point out one thing. We we did a little piece recently about trying to draw some parallels to, you know, what 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 kinds of good things or what kind of silver linings can come out of a you know this kind of a time of like real desperation and real real calamity. And and we looked at a very interesting case of a of a time in the in 1815 when one of the major um, Indonesian volcanoes exploded and flooded the atmosphere with volcanic ash and actually caused the temperature to decline around the world for several years and led to famines and you know all kinds of economic problems around the world and it's been referred to by historians as the year with no summer and of great interest i think the anecdote to cyclists here is that during that time period all of the agricultural commodity prices rose and people could no longer afford to feed their horses. And a long way around of the story comes to the fact that some guy in Germany decided to invent the forerunner of the bicycle. And, you know, you can almost directly attribute that to the fact that there had been this sort of global calamity. And it's just kind of a, for us in cycling, it's a very kind of cute little anecdote, but I think it illustrates that you know, at times of in tough times like this, there will be new innovations that come about or new new ways of doing things, and and that will undoubtedly happen here. We maybe don't know what it is yet, but I think we have to look for those sort of those sort of positive potential outcomes here as well. Uh, but let me let me let me ask Spencer to just give his perspective on on sort of you know where we're going to be when we come out of this whole thing as well.
3: Yeah, I just. Um was, you know, kind of a thought experiment thinking you know, it, it, this is a touchy subject because we are talking about, you know, a potential reduction in like the number of teams. Like if we go forward to October and we're actually racing again and we have Milan sent like the Italian calendar is now moved to October, but you know, five teams have folded during that time are, you know, and we're running races with, you know, 15 teams is you know, does does that actually create like more exciting race? Is are there essentially too many riders in these races? Like, what if we were doing races with fifteen teams of five riders each, and we're essentially having the number of participants in these premier events? Does that actually like, you know, does that encourage more attacking style? Is it harder to control the race? Something like that. That's it, always touchy when it comes up when the tour you know reduced a rider the riders unions don't like it because it is potentially taking away uh, jobs at that top level. But in this case, as in the races where it, it may no longer be of uh, all a choice of like races deciding to take, you know, step back and leave the calendar, they might be folding. You know, we just might not have enough teams at the end of the year or the beginning of next year. Like the sport might contract quite, quite starkly. And we just kind of have to carry forward with that contraction and I'd be curious to see, like, what what is the racing actually like? You know, for the longest time, since I think since anyone can remember, you know, there's probably been roughly 200 riders in the Tour de France. What, what does it look like with 100 riders? What, you know, what do these monuments look like with less riders? And then, you know, it's harder to sit in. It's harder to pull that breakaway that has 10 minutes up the road because you have less teammates. So, you know, just... Just things like that, that, you know, that could change rapidly before our eyes, it will be interesting to see, you know, how that affects the race. You know, maybe it's terrible and, you know, and we try to slowly invite more and more teams back to the, you know, more like more lower level teams back to these higher level races to get that number back up.
0: I have not heard the Instagram video from Lance Armstrong that you guys mentioned, but just the brief synopsis that you gave. Totally makes sense to me. I'm totally in agreement with that. But we all know that changes need to be made. And if they're not made now, they'll never be made. Like we've been looking for this opportunity to disrupt this balance of power between the ASO and the UCI, who've basically controlled everything to do with the sport. Moving forward into Cycling 2.0, who are the people that could change the cycling landscape and shape a more certain more fan friendly, more exciting, more easy to follow and especially financially stable
2: sport. The teams that figure out a way to survive through this, either by virtue of being financially stronger or by virtue of being more clever, will will have more influence on the sport when it comes out the other side. And I won't I won't name names, but I think we've already seen several teams um, at both the world team and the pro team level who are clearly more creative and more um, innovative at this, to- at this point in time than-, than most of their compatriots. They're aggressively finding ways to engage with their fans in a new way, You know, whether that be Zwift and writing types of things or whether it be general fitness or general health or even general nutrition types of ideas. Uh, We're seeing some that are just more active and more aggressive than others, and they're probably going to be the ones that would tend to survive a little bit better. I think um, in terms of the, you know, governance and structure of the sport, one would hope that a, you know, a drastic time like this will force some of the old uh, rivalries and, um, you know, sort of opponents in this business to maybe say, hey, if we're going to have a sport at all here, we better sit down and cooperate and and work together. And hopefully that might lead to a situation where the ASO invites the RCS and Flanders and a couple other parties and says, we all need to go talk to David, and we need to sit in one room, and we need to iron out our differences, and we need to run this thing more like a coordinated league rather than a bunch of little fiefdoms. So I think ASO could, you know, could really step up to the table here and take a more interactive role rather than a kind of a self, you know, a self-serving role, which they've often been accused of in the past. You know, things like that, um, I, I don't know, just off the top of my head, it seems like there will be, you know, the stronger and the more clever and the more innovative players will tend to be the ones that come out of this on the other side healthier. And hopefully, they'll be the types of players that can more, you know, responsibly stand up and try to address some of these long-time issues that you refer to.
1: And on that, on that point, um, Steve, like it's about innovating right now and about being flexible and, and manageable, is the most important thing for the sport of cycling coming out of this to get back to racing? And if that is the case, let's say, for example, half the teams disappear or two-thirds of the teams can't afford to keep on the minimum number of riders, but they can afford to keep on maybe 10 or 15. Should these organizations bend the rules, change the rules, just to get people back on bikes in the hope that it'll bring sponsors back to the sport? Or is there another another solution to that? Or what is the most important thing for the sport of cycling coming out of this to do?
2: I guess my take would be that, you know, first of all, we have to make sure that that the health and safety is protected. So all of that has to be a given before we do anything with with respect to returning to racing. But let's say that just hypothetically, let's say that this thing does resolve more quickly or that it sort of blows over more quickly than a lot of the public health experts expect at this point in time. Um, And that it's not just a summer, you know, let down that we actually get control on this thing and that we develop a vaccine and that we actually have it better under control by, say, just say hypothetically, by August. <clears throat> I think one of the arguments that the tour organizers are making right now is that, like Bobby said earlier, you know, we're a different kind of sport. We're not in a stadium. We could actually safely try to run this on the road. And wouldn't that be great for the fans? You know, wouldn't it be great to say, here's a sporting event that's actually coming back we can all celebrate that. We can all look forward to, you know, to watching it, and we can do so in a in a safe and and healthy manner. I think there's a good deal of value to that. I think, you know, if uh, if this goes on for a long period, I think at the end of the year, if we could have two or three races, all the fans would be, you know, pumped up and delighted, and, and you know, you know, really uh, really happy to see a return. I guess it's just that balance between, you know, doing that or are we doing it a little bit too early? are we are we going to let our guard down when this thing you know fades a bit during the summer and maybe make it worse in the fall again i think it all has to do with those questions around public health and clearly cycling has to take a second seat to that but yeah sure it'd be great to it would be great to be able to tell people hey it looks like we actually will be able to run these five races you know later in the year so we can all start looking forward to that and thinking how it may you know, thinking what it may look like under these new circumstances and so forth and so on.
0: And one last question, because you guys have definitely been more than gracious with your time. If you were in the meeting and everything that you've just said says you should be in a meeting like this, but if you were in the meeting with all the movers and the shakers of the sport, what would you say would be an agreed upon goal for fixing cycling using this current crisis as an opportunity to shape the sport for the better what what is the problem and how can we fix it and what would that look like with all the the cooperation instead of the competitiveness between these these certain governing bodies
2: that's a really big question you want to take the first cut at that spencer
3: (laughs) yeah yeah It's, it's funny steve has been you know talking about this long before i ever came along and joined the outer line so i'll i'll start and then he can kind of come in and fill that in i think i mean the first thing would be that as as you said bobby there's way too much it's it's way too much competition between different stakeholders you know like the utah jazz aren't out just for the utah jazz interest and they they want to screw over the denver nuggets it's like they all own individual franchises Yet they recognize by working together and promoting their product and providing like a, an aesthetically pleasing and safe environment for the athletes, you know, they can actually lift the revenue possibilities of, of all of them together. So that, that seems to be the major problem here. And it's, it's being expressed in just the Tour de France saying, you know, actually, we want to race in August uh, this year. They came out and said their plan B would be to push the race to August. It's like, well, did you? Uh, you, did you run that by the Vuelta? Or did you run that by any other race that was maybe thinking about those dates? And you, you're just kind of seeing this land grab for for open dates into the fall. And it's very indicative of this, you know, every every stakeholder is out for themselves. And there has to be a recognition that by like, only by working together, can you actually, you know, create valuable television rights? You know, can you drive other revenue you know, other revenue streams that aren't, so you're not just depending on a sponsor every year, because I can guarantee you the sponsorship rates next year are going to be a fraction of what they are this year. It, in these teams are going to have to figure out other other ways to monetize, but they can't do it alone. I mean, even the, the most clever team, you, you can't forge your own path here. I think there just has to be a, a, a recognition that the only way forward is, is like you're stronger together. So that that would be my summation there, Steve. I, I'm sure you have some stuff to add with that.
2: No, I think that's a pretty good pretty good summary. I mean, I think we have always, you know, pitched the idea that that this sport should be operated more like a typical franchise sport. We've often referred to the model of the Formula One racing, mm-hmm. of sort of a private entity where all of the all of the teams were were owned and operated by a single entity, or some of the models more common in U.S. sports. That's always gotten a lot of pushback from the European sort of legacy audience. But I think this may be the time that will we'll force people to do that because as Spencer said, that we have to have a mechanism for everybody to work together here in more of that sort of a franchise model. Or, uh, you know, we'll just, we'll, be, we'll just see more and more of what we've seen in the past, only maybe worse after this, after this sort of calamity. So I think that, that idea, I mean, we, we proposed this idea in a, in a business plan several years ago that some individual party needs to step up and act as the coordinator of that kind of a process. And we suggested that, you know, ASO should do that. They're already in a position of a pretty strong power. But if they brought two or three more of the players under their wing, they could essentially control the sport. And if not them, then maybe somebody else that should step in and play that role in their place. But that, that idea has never taken hold. Maybe this will this will force people to realize that, hey, if we want to survive in a in a healthy and a vibrant and a vital sort of way, we need to do something along those lines. And I think the second thing that this may this may force is that there has always been this concern about the UCI wearing two hats. And that, you know, on the one hand, they're the regulator and the official and the controller of the sport. On the other hand, they're a promoter of the sport and a promoter of their own individual event. We've already seen in the last week or so some, uh, you know, some controversy when they said, you know, we're sticking with our date for the world championships. They're a major source of revenue. Well, what if, you know, what if, uh, what if we can't start racing until the end of September? And, uh, you know, we only have 30 days or 45 days that we can feasibly race. Uh, is the UCI going to bend and allow some of the popular races to utilize that time slot, or are they going to insist that they maintain their revenue source? so I think you know hopefully this could maybe cause some reconsideration or re- you know recalibration of the of the UCI and what their role should be, which in our opinion has always been they should be a regulator and not a promoter of the sport that those two things are in are in direct conflict so we we probably haven 't answered your question, Bobby, but I think there's there's a lot of little tidbits and anecdotes around the edges here that, you know, this kind of a situation could force a reconsideration of, and hopefully like, like Spencer kind of summarized it, it will, it will come out the other side where we're, where where we're somehow able, or we're somehow forced to act in a more collective manner to, you know, for the good of the overall sport.
3: And I think the silver lining here is, if they try to go forward with the business as usual that they've been doing for years, it's, it's not going to work out. It, the problem is like bad behavior has been rewarded for years where you can kind of like not, not really have an innovative model, but you can get a pretty high sponsorship. You know, if you're in EOS and you're getting 40 million pounds a year to have your team, you know, why do you really care about the rest of the team's, Having an equitable you know amount of money to spend, but I think at this point it, it's the situation is going to degrade to a point where just carrying forward like that is no longer an option so that would in my mind that's the silver lining with this unfortunate
1: situation Steve Spencer, thank you so much um, for your time. some really interesting points you make there and and I think the biggest overarching kind of point is that the sport will be different coming out of this it will be cycling 2.0 and it's up to um the athletes to stand up and 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 you know shout what they want it's up for the teams to recognize the power in in organizing and i think it's up to the races and the UCI to recognize that they don't they can't exist um without each other and without the the riders and the teams again really fantastic uh, conversation and appreciate you guys taking the time to chat today
2: hey thanks for having us guys we're, we're glad to do it and uh, eager to eager to see where this whole thing goes to
3: yeah thanks for having us it was it was great to be on and yeah I am I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about this
1: Bobby there was a lot to unpack there um, a lot of really interesting thought provokers and some interesting perspectives on on what uh, the sport of cycling will look like uh, after all of the dust settles i'm interested to hear what your thoughts are for the sport coming out of all this
0: well i see this moment being an opportunity to shift the balance of power away from the aso and uci which do seem to have a strong hold on the entire cycling world at the moment and finally 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 include the riders both men and women the teams, and the race organizers at the head of the table. This is going to take a cooperative and concerned effort with so many different groups who are just focused on keeping their kingdom at the moment. But if they don't come together now, I believe our sport is doomed for generations to come. My dad always told me, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're gonna keep getting what you're getting. What the sport of cycling is doing or getting right now has to change. The UCI, Velo,n ASO, AIGCP, all the national federations, the race organizers, the teams, the riders, they have to put their squabbles aside right now and come together. It's now or never, in my opinion. I know that many people in power in these different organizations were past riders or athletes, you know, where, where ego and competitiveness is in their DNA. But I wonder if they will be able to relinquish this in order to forget and forgive and finally work together. If they do that, I think we're going to be so impressed on what they can achieve. Let's get some really smart people in a room and figure out this once and for all. Perhaps those people could even come outside of the current circle of power of cycling. More people on bikes, more people wanting to learn about the sport, more eyeballs means more sponsors. It's up to all of us to educate, motivate and inspire not only the next generation of cyclists, but the next generation of cycling fans and sponsors. I believe we need to create intrigue, make the race calendar build to a crescendo and provide a clear winner, perhaps even a playoff scenario like in other sports. Provide content, tell stories, create characters, explain the sport, make it easier to understand. I believe this will create interest, and it all starts with the kids and their parents. Understanding and passion that we need from the fans and supporters, and most most importantly, future sponsors. All of this can and must lead to revenue and valuation. Nothing that I said is new. This has been going on, this has been talked about for years and years and years, as there are many more smart people out there that have tried to make these changes, only to be scuttled by the current powers that be. This has to change. Our sport has its challenges such as no gate, but we do have huge potential in profiting from the digital rights side of things. If we can find a way to stop focusing on what we don't have and come up with more creative ways to work together and use those digital rights, we too could be set up like franchises where billionaires and big companies bid for the teams like they do in so many other sports. These companies like Amazon and these multi-billionaires they did not become wealthy by giving their money away but by growing it let's convince them that the sport of cycling that we all love is worth investing in
1: i guess time will tell and we will see um in the coming weeks months and maybe years um how that plays out But i'm cautiously optimistic
0: and that is it that's all we have time for this week Hope you enjoyed this episode, and thanks again to Steve Maxwell and Spencer Martin for their time and insights. You can also get the show as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at VelaNews.com. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever your favorite go-to podcast site may be. Just search for Put your socks on, or Fizzo, P Y S O. Please continue to show your support by subscribing to this program, and please spread the word by telling your friends about Fizzo.
1: You can get at us on social media, Fizzo Pod on Twitter. That's P Y S O P O D uh, at that is Gus, and at Bobby Julik on Instagram. Reach out to us there. Uh, suggestions, feedback, just say hello. And yeah, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next week.
0: Thank you to all of our listeners. Stay safe, stay sane, and don't forget to put your socks on.